welcome. We're glad that you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout Advent, we observe Christ's first coming, His birth, and also look forward to His second coming. Each of our four weeks leading up to Christmas, we will reflect on what Jesus brings, love, peace, joy, and hope, and study these using the New Testament letters to the early church. This will be a fitting conclusion to our year-long journey through the Bible, which we've called Love This Book. We are looking forward to celebrating Advent and would enjoy even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. For waiting. And usually it's a season I really enjoy, but I don't know about you. Uh, this year I feel a little weighted out. And so I've had some trouble connecting with this season on the church calendar designed to help us wait. And so I'd like to take a moment together and just pray over some of the things that I think we've all been waiting for. And if they resonate with you, then just offer those up to God in prayer. So would you pray with me? God, many of us this year have been waiting for reunion with family. been waiting to find out whether or not we got a new job. I've been waiting for a stimulus check to help cover rent. Some of us have spent far too long waiting for election results to come in. Some of us have spent time waiting for test results back from the doctor. Some of us are waiting for answers as to why we've been hurt. We've spent time waiting to find out whether or not our kids can go to school or what to do about childcare. We've been waiting for healing in broken relationships. Some of us are just waiting to not feel so lonely. If you've been waiting this year, whatever you've been waiting for, offer that up to God in this moment. God, Advent is a season of waiting. Waiting for you to appear. Waiting for you to show up in our midst, in our circumstances, and in our lives. It's a season that we're reminded that you do show up, but the waiting is still hard. So Father, I pray where, wherever we may be this morning, whatever we may be waiting for, I pray that, that we could wait with hope as we wait for your appearing in our midst, that we would not lose heart. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. My name is Paul Joslin. Uh, I am one of the pastors on staff here. And I actually need to begin today's message uh, with a confession. So are you ready for confessions of your pastor? I, uh, I ran a red light on the way to church this morning. And uh, when I say, I clap, okay, all right. Not quite what I was expecting. And, and when I say I ran a red light on the way to church this morning, I don't mean that I was like at a green light. I saw it turning yellow and I thought, I'll just make it. I was sitting at a red light waiting for it to turn green 
and I just went for it. Now, in my defense, it was 6.30 in the morning, and uh, it was 12 degrees in my car, and no one was around, so I don't know that it was really that bad, uh, but I just felt like I had to confess that to you before we get going with this whole Bible thing and talking about Jesus and all that. But the truth is, as I was thinking about it, I hate waiting. Oh, I hate waiting. I do not, I'm not a patient person. Any people in the room who resonate with that, you're just not a waiter, don't like patience. That's like patience is just not a virtue. You resonate with it. Okay. I'm feeling kind of alone. Not a lot of hands, but a few. Um, yeah, I'm just not a patient person. I don't like waiting. I'm one of those people that if I have to like wait for a cup of coffee in line, I like pull out my phone to fill the time somehow because I can't just sit there for 30 seconds and talk to the barista. Don't like waiting. It's just hard for me. Um, but I think, honestly, a, a lot of us, we have trouble waiting. We, we don't enjoy waiting. Waiting can honestly feel a bit old-fashioned, can it? Like, it's a bit odd to wait for things when you can do Amazon one-click, one-day delivery. Like, why wait? Amazon can deliver it to your door that same day. And the problem with that, this high-tech, high-speed culture where we can move at fast pace, we don't have to wait for a lot of stuff, is that it actually disrupts our rhythm with God a little bit. Because, I don't know if you know this, God does not work at the pace of Amazon. I've checked, and God is not available for delivery on DoorDash. That's just not how he works. We have to wait for God more than we would like. We have to wait for God to show up in our lives. And it's in the waiting that we often ask the question that, that we, we ask when we wait. Is the wait worth it? Is the wait worth it? Is waiting for God to show up worth it? I think it's something we all struggle with, especially in a year where we have had to wait on a lot of things. I was reminded this week of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a believer in Nazi Germany during World War II. And he actually led an underground movement of Christians who tried to, to resist and stand against the Nazi regime and the atrocities that they were committing in their country. And he was actually arrested for those efforts and sent to a concentration camp and spent the last few years of his life not leading the church in a movement, but sitting in, in a concentration camp awaiting for his execution. And he was actually murdered just a few weeks before his concentration camp was liberated. But there's a letter that he wrote that they found after his death. He wasn't actually able to send this letter, but he, in the concentration camp, wrote a letter to his parents around the season of Christmas and Advent, writing to his family about whether or not Christmas was still worth celebrating and whether or not Christmas was still worth waiting for. This is what he said. Celebrating Advent means being able to wait. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. It wants to break open the ripe fruit when it has hardly finished planting the shoot. For the greatest, most profound, tenderest things in the world, we must wait. It happens not here in a storm, but according to the divine laws of sprouting, growing, and becoming. Just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. 
God is in the manger. Wealth and poverty, light and darkness, succor and abandonment. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Even while waiting in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, Christmas is worth waiting for. And that's the question before us today. As we sit and wait, is the wait worth it? But we're not the first believers to ask this question. In fact, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians, a group of believers who have been following Jesus, and they've come to this place where they're trying to persevere. They are living in the midst of persecution. They're living in the midst of suffering, and they're asking the question, is it worth it to wait for God to show up? And this is what the author of Hebrews says. It is worth it. The wait is worth it if we fix our eyes on Jesus. This is what he says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all of those who have come before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the author, he's using this illustration of a race. He's saying that while we wait, and we're wondering whether or not the wait is worth it, we don't just sit on our hands wondering when God is going to show up. We're not just standing, waiting in line for our turn to get into heaven. There is a race to be run. And the purpose of this race The goal of this race is fixing our eyes on Jesus, which is a little bit of a strange phrase because I don't know if you know this or not, but we can't actually see Jesus. I mean, he's still alive, but he's no longer with us. He lived 2,000 years ago, and we cannot see Jesus. So what does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, we're very familiar with how we can fix our eyes on things. I mean, after all, when we see people we're attracted to, we're good at fixing our eyes on them. We're good at fixing our eyes on our kids when they're about to do something we know they're not supposed to do. Don't do it, right? Like we know what it looks like to fix our eyes. We can fix our eyes on on our phones, social media, the stock market. I spend way too much time with my eyes fixed on my phone checking my fantasy football score. I mean, we know what it is to fix our eyes on things. It means we give it our sole focus, all of our attention. It's the, the drive that motivates us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if we want to run the race well, if we want the weight to be worth it, Jesus has to be central to our lives. He's not on the periphery of our lives, but he's the sole focus of our lives. Our eyes are fixated on him and him alone. The reality is most of us don't live our lives that way. And and the author of Hebrews, he acknowledges this. In verse 1, he says that there are actually two reasons that we often lose sight of Jesus. There are two reasons why we often don't live with him as the sole focus of our lives. And the first he calls, calls hindrances. And the second he calls sin. Now he uses this image as he's talking about this race that there are things in our life, hindrances, that we need to throw off in order to run the race well. They're not necessarily sins per se, but they're things that we pick up and carry, weights, burdens that we carry that keep us from running the race well. 
It's almost this image of someone trying to run a marathon with a cross-country backpack on. I mean, who's going to run a marathon with a 50-pound backpack weighing them down? All it's going to do is wear you out, make you tired, and cause you to lose sight of Jesus. And so he says we have to take these hindrances, these weights that we carry, and throw them off so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the question is, what kind of backpack are we carrying? What is the weight that's burdening us and keeping us from keeping our eyes focused on Jesus? I think there's a a couple that I've seen this year, and and some of these are are, are honestly from my own life, and, and I wonder if you resonate with them. See, I think some of the things that are holding us back from, from running this race, is, one is, is apathy. I mean, who likes running anyways, right? Not me. I mean, why run hard day after day after day after day? See, we're not necessarily distracted by things of this world, but we have no enthusiasm for Jesus. Our love for him has gone cold, and we're just sort of apathetic, I mean, I'll probably get back to following Jesus with more fervor after COVID. This is kind of a pause for all of us anyways, right? Like, I don't have to actually, there's nothing to do. So I wonder if the weight of apathy has caused you to lose sight of Jesus. Another that I've seen this year in in so many conversations with believers is the weight of fear. The weight of fear. I don't know how many conversations I've had with believers who are afraid of the future, afraid of losing power, afraid of losing privilege, afraid of losing religious freedom, afraid of who's going to be in power, afraid of death. I mean, our our eyesight has become so all-consumed with the fear that we see that we've lost sight of Jesus. Now, I actually, I want to pause for a minute because I think this is really important. And I actually didn't have this thought out beforehand. But there's a a passage in Hebrews 11 where it comes before this section, where where he's talking about the hindrances we have to to cast off. And what's fascinating is he talks about these witnesses, these people who have followed Jesus, who have gone before us in faith. And he talks about some of the things that they've experienced He talks about some of the things that they've gone through. Listen to what he says. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute with nothing, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And these were all commended for their faith. I mean, that's our legacy. Those are the believers who have come before us. I mean, I have to wonder what it must be like for them to see some of the things that we are afraid of. For them to see some of the things that keep us in fear, holding us back from the pursuit of Jesus and keeping our eyes fixed on him. What is the fear that is holding you back and causing you to lose sight of Jesus? And if fear and apathy are two of the things that I think are hindrances that, that often keep us from following Jesus, I think there's a third one that, that, that might seem minor, but I think it's just as influential in our lives. And it's this, it's margin. I think many of us live the life of faith with a lack of margin in our lives. We live the life of faith in pursuit of Jesus without any room for Jesus in our lives. We are so good at making ourselves busy. I mean, do, do any of you remember when the whole quarantine thing started and the lockdown started? And, and I, I don't know how many times I heard it said, and I know I said that, oh, this will actually be great. This will be a chance for me to slow down. Did that happen for anyone? It didn't for me. We're so good at filling our lives with things that we think are so important, things that we think have to get done, things that we think require all of our attention and effort and energy. You know, we live at a pace of life where we have no space for Jesus. How can we fix our eyes on Jesus when we don't have the time to look at him? John Piper, he once said that, that he's astonished at the number of Christians he meet who, who genuinely believe in God and yet think that happiness with God can be found by giving him 2% of our attention. I mean, how many of us live in that space where I know I need to give more of myself to God, but there's all these important things. That, what is so important? What are we spending our time doing that causes us to lose sight of Jesus? What is the burden that we need to let down so that we can run the race? You see, this author in Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but he says that the key is fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer of our faith. Some of you growing up, you might have heard the, the term the author of our faith. I think pioneer is actually a better word because the image behind it is he's the one who has gone before us. He is the one who has cleared the path. He is the one who has made a way for us to enter into God's presence. He is the one who has cleared out all of the roadblocks so that we can enter into relationship with God. Now, there are sure hurdles along the way, but he has cleared the way as the pioneer going before us. And that when we fix our eyes on him, we know the way. We don't have to be worn down by these burdens. We don't have to lose heart by these hindrances that keep us from following after him. So keep your eyes on him because he will show you the way. But it's not just hindrances that keep us from running the race. We also get to a place where, where sin entangles us. And the author says sin entangles us. It's this image of, of running a race with shackles around your feet. Trying to run a race where, where you can't even go a couple steps without stumbling because you are locked together and enslaved to sin. 
And he says, we have to throw off the burden of sin. Now, whether or not you believe in God, my guess is that you actually believe in sin. I mean, one theologian, he says this about sin. He says, sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Basically meaning that when you look at the world, you see the effects of sin. I mean, we all see the way that sin has damaged ourselves, the things that have happened in our lives that we have done in our lives that have caused damage to ourselves. We see the way that people are hurt by other people. We see the way that we've been hurt by other people. We see the way that humanity's effect on the world is a cause of disintegration and destroying God's good creation. Even if we don't believe in God, we can see the effects of sin. And yet there's often two ways that we end up dealing with sin. The first is that that we try to make it relative. So we try to say what's bad is is not really bad, it's okay, and, and, and we become experts at justifying the actions that we take and the things we believe and the way we live our lives. When we look at sin, we're, we are excellent arguers of, of, of why we are actually good people and don't do things wrong, and the things that people might think we've done wrong were actually good because other people deserved it or what. We are so good at coming up with reasons for why what we do is good. We make sin relative. Calvin and Hobbes, they actually have a conversation with this because Calvin is concerned about not getting presents from Santa because he doesn't think he's been good enough. Here, look at this. I'm getting nervous about Christmas. You've been worried you haven't been good. Well, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. See, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. Kind of a weird one to throw in there, but we'll keep going. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I deserve lots of presents? But maybe good is more than the absence of bad. See, that's what worries me. It doesn't worry him very much because he goes on. Okay, assuming I can get an overnight letter to the North Pole, what would you charge to write me a glowing character reference? Oh no, I'm not going to perjure myself for you. My record's clean. But we have those conversations, don't we? How good is good? What is actually bad? See, we're masters at coming up for reasons why sin is relative. Like telling a room full of people that you ran a red light because it was cold and it was early in the morning and no one was around. We do it with lots of bigger things than just running a red light at 6.30 in the morning, don't we? You see, and the only way we can deal with sin when we make it relative is, is to hopefully get some sort of glimpse, some small glimmer of who Jesus is. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we see the way that he lived his life, when we see how holy he was, when we see how he loved others, when we see the way that he treated people, we can't help but be confronted by the weight of our own sin. If that's what it means to be a good person, then there's no way that I even come close. So it's when we fix our eyes on Jesus that we see sin is not relative that Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, has shown us the standard of what it means to perfectly do the will of God. But there's a second way some of us deal with sin. 
And, and it's this, we, we come to our sin and we are actually really aware of our sin. We are so in tune with how sinful we are. I mean, we fixate on our sin. And, and if you're like me, you have conversations like this. I just have to be better. I just have to stop doing this. I just need to start doing this. I have to, I have to, I need to, I have to. And we fixate so much on our sin and so much on the things that we're doing in our lives that we lose sight of Jesus. We come to this place where our sin is all-consuming. The weight of it, the burden of it, it feels so powerful. It has enslaved us. And we think there is no way for us to get out from underneath that burden. Just try harder. Just be better. I mean, I know I grew up in a culture where that was the message from the church. Just try harder. Just make sure you don't do this. Just make sure you don't do this. It's all behavior modification, trying to call people to some standard that they can never meet. So many of the people my age and younger, they walk away from the faith in church because that is the message they hear. Be better. Do better. Try harder. The reality is this, none of that has the power to deal with the sin in our lives. It is only by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's not by focusing more on our sin. It's by fixing our eyes on the one who has the power to deal with our sin. By fixing our eyes on the one who can offer us freedom. It's not about willpower. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. And he's the one who offers the freedom from the shame because he endured it for us. So we don't have to be enslaved to sin and and continue stumbling over the same things over again. Set that aside and look to Jesus. When we fix our eyes on him, when we become more in love with him than our sin, then it begins to fade away. When we become enthralled and enraptured with the person of Jesus Christ, then all of the things that tempt us in this world begin to lose their power. Because he is the perfecter of our faith. He not only shows us where we are supposed to run, but how to run. He is the one who lived perfectly aligned with God's will, and he is the example for us that we can follow by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. And cast off the burden of sin that enslaves us. Well, let's be honest. There's still one more thing that often keeps us from following after Jesus, that keeps us from from fixing our eyes on Him. And that's the circumstances of our lives. It's the suffering, it's the hardship, it's the difficulty, it's the waiting. How long, O Lord, will you make us wait? And when we begin to fix our eyes on our problems and our situations and our circumstances and our sufferings, we can lose sight of Jesus. But I think it's actually in fixing our eyes on Jesus that all of those things begin to make sense as well. This is how the author of Hebrews finishes this short teaching. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus because he endured suffering. He knows what it is to endure shame. He knows what it is to be broken. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him. It's fascinating to me that in this passage, Hebrews says that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. What was Jesus' joy on the other side of the cross? What was the joy that motivated him to endure all of that suffering? To endure all of that shame? What was the joy? You see, in Hebrews, the the whole narrative is around this idea that Jesus is the high priest, that he is the one who, who represents the people to God, that he is the one who made a way for the people to come into God's presence. He's the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate priest who represents perfectly the people of God and makes a way for them to enter into God's presence. Jesus is the one who makes a way for sinners to come back into relationship with God. And the joy set before him was the redemption of sinners, was the salvation of sinful people like you and me. Now, now don't miss this. Listen, who takes joy in the salvation of their enemies? Who takes joy in those who have wronged them coming to redemption? Who takes joy in the people who have hurt him and sinned against him coming to a healthy, whole place of salvation? I don't, but Jesus does. And so in the midst of our circumstances, we can have that same joy knowing that Christ came. In the midst of our waiting, we can have joy Because Christ endured the cross and its shame, making a way for us to have a relationship with God. And so is the wait worth it? I've always been fascinated by a story from Scripture found in Luke 2 about an old Jewish man named Simeon. We don't know much about Simeon. He's not in the scriptures for very long. But Simeon was, what we do know about him is that he was a just and faithful and devout man of God. And that somewhere along in his life, he was told that he would not die before he saw the Messiah in the flesh. And so this man, Simeon, waited and waited and waited for the Messiah. And one day, he gets a prompting from the Holy Spirit. Hey, today is the day you need to go to the temple. Today is the day that you need to go into the presence of God. And when he goes there, he sees a young family with a baby. And there's this prompting from the Holy Spirit, this little stirring in him that maybe, is, could that be? Could that be the Messiah? And he goes up, and he can understand maybe the, the awkward interaction between Mary and Joseph, where he goes up and, and asks them if, if he can hold their child. It was pre-COVID time, so it was okay. It wasn't a problem. And he goes and he asks Mary and Joseph, can, can I hold your baby? And as he holds this child, Jesus, the Holy Spirit overwhelms him with a confirmation that this is the one you have been waiting for. 
This is the one that all of your life you have been searching and waiting for. And this is what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He is overcome holding this young child overcome by the the confirmation that that he has finally seen what he has been waiting for. That all of the promises God has given his people are fulfilled in this young baby. And he says, there's nothing left for me here. That's all I needed. I'm content. You can take your servant. I can die in peace now because I have seen Jesus. Do we have that same kind of of longing? Are our eyes fixed so determinedly on what God has told us to wait for that like Simeon, when we receive it, that's it. I'm done. I don't need anything else. I have Jesus. I think if you could ask Simeon, he would say that the wait was worth it. That seeing the promise fulfilled in that young child, he would say it was absolutely worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that that we would be a people who believe that it is worth it. That we would so fix our eyes on you that everything else in this world would just fade away. God, may you be all that we long for, all that we desire. God, may you give us the courage and the boldness and the hope and the joy to believe that the wait is worth it in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.